0: Good evening, Team Kulak community, and welcome back to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine War. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at of the Brook Kulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, and we welcome back Dr. Yuval Weber, our Russian subject matter expert, to cover the again a very sort of newsy period since we last our last episode. So the, the the big thing we're just gonna we're gonna jump right in because the obviously the, the 70 ton elephant in the room with 120 millimeter smoothbore cannon is tanks. And uh, I think it was a day or two after we did the last episode, because we had, we had done the last episode during the, the NATO conference at Ramstein, where there was a lot of implied and actual verbal pressure on Germany to, to free the leopards, uh, you know, hashtag free the leopards, because uh, that's one of the most prolific tanks across uh, European militaries. And uh, Germany so far had been not allowing the countries that purchased it under the, the arms export legislation in place. They were not allowing those countries to send those to Ukraine. But a couple of days after that Ramstein conference, uh, there was a change and the leopards were freed. And so all the European countries, which by my my last count is about 13 European countries have variants of the leopard, which uh, we're, we're ready to start transferring those. Also with the tanks, we had one of these, you know, no, 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 and then yes, things from um, uh, from the American administration, which was the the M1 Abrams tank, which is the United States main battle tank has been for several decades now. and a, uh, a smaller number of those were committed to be delivered to Ukraine kind of in a more distant in a distant future here, uh, you know later this year. But the point was tanks are now on the table and uh, and getting ready to be sent to. Ukraine, which is something they've been asking for for a long time. So you how did we, how did we get here? How did we free the leopards and uh, um, what are, what are some of the, the implications of how that log jam got, got cleared?
1: So certainly always a pleasure to be with you, uh, Ian, um, you know, in our, in the last episode when it was happening right during the Ramstein conference, the basically brand new German defense minister had said uh, we haven't made a decision. But I've ordered an inventory just in case. And so that seemed to be the the decision that effectively Germany could be uh, massaged or pushed into a corner uh, until it was ready to come out and basically work with its NATO partners uh, and allies. And in that regard, you know, I think we, we've obviously seen this in a lot of different things before. In which there has been resistance to giving Ukraine, everything that it wants all at once. Um, part of that is to ensure that the Ukrainians are ready to receive whatever, you know, weapon system or platform. Uh, and again, that there seems to be and that also providing for the Russians, um, you know, not the sort of um, escalation or speed of escalation that would really cause the Russians to make you know, some some grievous decision. But it also helps, I think, reflect on what is the redefinition of German security, you know, a year after what the current um German chancellor uh, Olaf Scholz uh termed the uh, the sea change, the Zweitenung in uh German. Um and if I mispronounce that, I apologize to our German listeners. Um but in that regard, for roughly 50 years, Germany had a foreign policy called Ostpolitik, uh, the Eastern policy in which their view towards the then soviet union and russia was that they were going to create a much tighter and independent relationship between germany and or west germany first but then germany and uh, russia through economic exchange and that economic exchange is uh, russia exports inexpensive energy uh, to fuel the german economy and germany then sells uh, both finished goods but ultimately becomes the spokesperson or the spokes country for Russia inside Europe. That was 50 plus years going back to the days of Willy Brandt. and really what the effect of the, the invasion or the further invasion, one might say in February, 22 February, 24th, 2022 was redefining German security. Because Germany and Europe had had the relationship where, in effect. Germany was 1st divided but then bound into Europe in a way to reassure the rest of Europe, given the experiences of World War I and World War II. And where the really, like, when we think about these tanks is that there had been, you know, 70 plus years since the end of World War Two, 50 years of a relationship with uh, Russia, and really what the German political class was meant to confront in the space of a couple of days is that essentially to be in Europe, Was to be with Ukraine in a way that was extremely novel and extremely, I would imagine uncomfortable for a lot of the German political elites, which had really thought that their contribution to the security and safety of Europe was providing a relatively uh, safe and Pacific and um, non threatening Russia. And once Russia effectively demonstrated that it was going to be a threat and a danger, no matter what. In since the 50 years of a grand strategy no longer made sense and so as we've seen over the the course of the past year what the germans have been effectively like you know taking off you know maybe like uh, layers of an onion here but basically sheet by sheet is that Russia's going to be very consistent in terms of its maximalist war aims and so everything that seemed really crazy for the germans to do the more that russia basically bombs ukraine the less crazy each particular thing that they're asked to do seemingly becomes. And so again, for all the German political elite, the idea of supplying tanks against Russia, one sense makes totally perfect, like totally perfect sense. In another, it's like, this is crazy. A year ago, none of us even would have dreamed of being asked this. And I think that is a way that we can try to explain how Germany is being led along is being brought along, but has to be kicking and screaming the whole way because they have to manage basically the internal expectations. And the political elites um, all at the same time, while maintaining their commitments to the rest of uh, the European Union to the rest of NATO and to the security and stability of the continent, rich large. And so the tanks. As a last-ditch effort, they had asked the uh, the United States to also give over its uh, its Abram tanks, and uh, again, President Biden and you know Secretary of Defense Austin said, you know, we're not really interested in that. Until they said, okay, apparently that's that's fine too. And so, in between the Leopards from across Europe, Abrams from uh, the United States, Challenger from the UK, and the uh, Leclerc uh, from France, it looks like. Uh, Ukraine is going to get something in the neighborhood of what three to 400 tanks over the course of uh, the next year, the leopards quickly. And then those other ones um, sometime thereafter, but over the course of this year, it looks like.
0: Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, to to give some context to the listeners, you know, why was there such specific pressure on the leopard? And, you know, as, as we just sort of talked about here, and you mentioned, like, it's it was a very it was a german export tank in large numbers so the number of leopards that are proliferated across europe are relatively high the number of european operators is, i think i said 13 countries relatively high and so a lot of the pressure was you know this is a commonly distributed tank and it's in a lot of different countries so if you're looking to sort of pool your resources that's a, a natural thing you would want to go after you know who's who's got the most of the same thing and now the challenger and the Leclerc and then the Abrams as as commitments to the longer term you know security of Ukraine and helping build up their offensive capability pretty clear that that's that's what those are intended for on the other on the other side um this goes into what has been a a recurring challenge for Ukraine is you know sometimes your your friends can almost be your own worst enemies not not on purpose but they can they can create your friends can create new problems in trying to help you solve old problems, and so we just mentioned four different types of tanks, right? That's for logistics change, for supply parts, uh, you know, you know, replacement and repair procedures that you're going to have to go through, and each of those, you know, the manufacturers may have different lead lag times in terms of being able to deliver more parts in helping build up a you know repair depots and a sustainment pipeline for those things to stay in the field. And, uh, you know, if you're Ukraine, that's a problem you would rather have than not have the tanks at all. Is having to figure out how to sustain and repair and keep in the fight for different types of tanks. But that's still a heck of a challenge, and that's consistent with the smorgasbord of different munitions, different armaments that they've gotten from all the European countries, is you've got chaotic sort of, you know, ball of yarn, different types of of weapons and munitions that you have to request different parts and different training you know the cal the caliber of munition type is probably less of an issue because part of standardization across nato countries is having like same caliber of munitions so the munitions themselves may be somewhat simpler than all these different weapon systems and all these different supply chains and all this different training you have to maintain so um you know again it's ukraine it's a problem i'm sure ukraine would like to have because having four types of tanks that you have to sustain is better than having zero types of tanks so not having any sort of any sort of armored offensive capability you know but it's something to to keep in mind that this will create a, a challenge for them to to keep those 3 to 400 tanks in fighting condition and to go into to the abrams thing for, you know for a, a small digression here the way you describe that i had this picture of like a poker game where like you know secretary of defense austin is kind of just like continue keeps throwing the chips in up in the ante and Germany thinks it's finally going to get a, you know, bluff its way out. And it didn't. So I I don't think I'll ever want to play poker against secretary of defense Austin in that case. But um, for a long time, the the United States had indicated that there were enough challenges to sending the Abrams that they were, they didn't want to commit them. And, you know, part of those challenges were, I think we we talked about here briefly was at least with the Leopards and the challenger and the Leclerc, you've got, sustainment and parts and a an already existing logistics architecture on the continent that you can draw on for those types of things. You don't have that for the Abrams. So that's, that's partly why this we're not going to probably see the Abrams in whatever spring offensive Ukraine launches is because you got to build that whole chain across the Atlantic because Abrams have not been permanently stationed in Europe for a long time. And then, um, there were there were some other parts you know why why not the Abrams you know um people talked about how the Leopard is a it's a diesel engine in that tank so uh you know diesel gasoline a little bit easier to probably attain than what is essentially jet gasoline for the Abrams because the Abrams has a turbine engine whereas the the Leopard is powered by a you know a diesel internal combustion engine And I did a little bit of research on this because like everybody's a lot of people made a big point about, yeah, it's got a jet engine, so it's going to be much harder to maintain and sustain. Ukraine did have some Soviet model tanks. uh, I think they're later models that did have a turbine engine. So it's not like they wouldn't know how to work on a tank powered by a turbine engine. Um, But the point is, it's a different engine. Um, There's no existing logistics chain in Europe that you can draw on. So you're going to have to build that up. And as well, uh, you know, the Abrams turbine engines are gas guzzlers, you know, so they're going to consume a lot more fuel for every mile that they're going for compared to the diesel engine. You know, whether the, you know, the strength of these, these rationale or not, it's kind of a moot point now because they're getting the Abrams anyway, you know, but these were part of the considerations of you want to give the Ukrainians something they can use and ideally use in the now, you know, you know, rather than six months from now. So you know those Abrams are probably going to be one of those six months from now thing, but again, it's a, you know, there there were reasons why there were there was reluctance to give them, and those tanks I think the we had, were giving them thirty roughly or more, you know, are very unlikely to be part of the spring offensive for Ukraine. Um, that said, the Abrams it's uh, it's a highly lethal modern main battle tank, and even though they're not getting like the full version that the US has because the US there's an ex as with a lot of munitions, there's an export version. And then there's like, you know, there's the Rolls Royce version you keep for yourselves. Um, they, the model that the U.S. has has a a special composite armor, the construction of which is classified. You know, it's at a secret level. Um, that's not the export version. So the tanks going forward are not going to have the special armor, but they're going to have the other, all the other upgrades that your, your Abrams have in terms of. You know, optics for targeting um, stabilization of the turret for highly accurate fires. So. It'll be a good system. The, the point is, it's just not going to get there very quickly because there's all those other things you have to put into place. First.
1: So, when we think about the tanks, obviously, um, you know, Ukraine has its own tanks and uh, basically the Soviet era T systems, as well as the more modern ones that they've been able to. Uh, capture from the Russians. So, in effect. Ukraine has, let's say the T series of varying vintages uh, as well as basically all these new ones that are coming in, but to the extent that we can basically speculate uh, on how they're going to be used. You've mentioned a number of times uh, the forthcoming spring uh, offensive, and obviously the spring offensive is meant to. The ground is fairly uh, you know hard right now if they'd had all these tanks a couple of months ago, we probably would have seen uh, many more tank battles this winter. They'll get past basically the the ground softening up um, in spring. Ground will dry out at some point. It's been a very uh, mild winter, relatively speaking. But to the extent that you're you're looking ahead, how do you foresee the tanks, the let's say the 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 variety, the potpourri of tanks uh, being used? What's how are tanks used, and where do you think they will be uh, used to greatest effect in terms of a counteroffensive? uh to retake territory or strike at russian positions
0: sure so i'll caveat this up front with i'm an assault support helicopter pilot i am not a strategist or a tanker or, or think anything of your like excuses that. brown just get <laughs> get to the tank talk yeah uh all right tank talk that's a, that could be a good totally separate miniseries here but yeah. yeah so I, you know but there's there's two things tanks are really good for you know one tanks are good for fighting other tanks, you know, when you know your opponent has them, because tanks are very hard to kill, and so part of why tanks—well, let me reel this back. Part of why tanks exist is to kill other tanks. Conversely, another reason why tanks exist is that they are mobile, protected firepower, and that mobile part is another key part of what they have. Which is, which, if you look at sort of historical trends of tank use, that's a a way that people like to use them if they are able to if they can sort of find a, a weak spot in an adversary's line to punch those tanks through. Because once you sort of punch through the front line, they're if they're mobile and they're very highly protected, generally the things behind your front line are are sort of less protected, softer targets, because all of your hard stuff is at the front, trying to maintain the front. So um, tanks are weapons where you, you would punch them through a weak part in the adversary's line, let them sort of run rampant in the rear and gain territory sever supply lines cause chaos and find yourself a weak point that you can flow other forces in behind to to take more ground and disrupt unhinge an adversary's fixed positions and once you lose a fixed position you try and reconstitute that position into a stronger playing somewhere else and then that opens up opportunities on those still you know hardly you know firmly defended parts of your front line you may decide to abandon those because now you've got tanks in your rear and you want to try and re-establish a good front line and i'm trying to think of, like i i don't like to always go back to the world war ii analogs i think we exhaust that thing but um an example of how tanks were used are if you compared say you know desert storm if we're talking about abrams you know abrams were a big part of, the, of that you had some parts of desert storm where you had uh, and, and you know shout out to the marine corps here right you had deliberate assaults with, uh, you know, with armor into strong Iraqi defenses in Kuwait, where, you know, Iraq had built up, you know, very lots of fixed fortifications, anti tank positions, in anticipation of a US push directly in them. Right. So the the Marines did that, they pushed through that and the Marines had, you know, tanks and armored vehicles. Conversely, you had the, uh, I think it was called like the hanging the hanging flank of the Iraqi armor deep in the desert west of kuwait itself and that's where you had united states army tanks as this this highly mobile fist that swung around those fortified iraqi positions and got behind them and went to go sever their lines of communication their retreat lines basically back into you know back into friendly territory in iraq you know because there it was open desert you had mobility and you the iraqis had no fixed fortifications there so you you Between that like deliberate assault and that that open flank where you just drive the tanks as fast as you can to get behind the enemy, then you create you know the hammer and the anvil that you can sort of crush your your adversary in between. So those are those are some of the ways you can use tanks, and the more tanks you have, like that gives you the options to do both. So if I were to you know sort of speculate, how is Ukraine going to use its tanks? I would imagine they're you know they they've already gone in the sort of like the attritional fight near bach moon, right and we've talked about this before they don't want to fight on russia's terms russia's terms are highly attritional warfare highly casualty intensive combat that consumes your resources which would mean consuming all of those nice new tanks and bradley's and other and strikers and european you know infantry fighting vehicles you you don't want to lose those so that you you wouldn't want to necessarily set yourself up for that kind of fight so I would think, and especially looking back at what the Ukrainians did in Harkiv versus Kherson is maybe, you know, trying to signal a assault in one place, but then trying to identify a weak spot where they can drive those tanks through and all those infantry fighting vehicles, because we talked about last episode, those are also armor, mobile protected firepower for your infantry. So you find a weak spot, drive your tanks through, and then you've got all these vehicles to bring the infantry right behind them to consolidate those gains I would think they're going to look for a soft spot where they can where they can drive that that armored fist of leopards and challengers and leclercs and and all those other things through to both gain territory but also dislocate the fixed Russian line um because they they again we saw in Kharkiv once you unhinge that Russian line they run right they fall back so that's that's a good way to try and maximize um the territory that you're liberating by Forcing a, a Russian withdrawal by dislocating their front line by punching through a soft spot, where that soft spot is, I I don't know. um You know, we've talked about where certain some of the key terrain is. You know, looking down at Mariupol or Melitopol because you cut that, you've cut the land bridge into Crimea. But I would I'd be I, I'm not pretending that I have any more information than anybody else who sort of follows the war and open source stuff does. So where that soft spot is, I I don't know, but. I would expect that that's that's where they would drive their armored their armored units um, to cause that dislocation.
1: And so certainly to your point of you know going against relatively softer targets you know to to swoop behind et cetera. I was watching one of these uh, Russian talk shows, and um, the the host, this guy Vladimir uh, Solovyov, who's off He's there for the long haul, wherever it goes. And you know, this was around the time that the tanks were being announced that they were going to happen. And he was like, "Well, you know, there. This is a provocation, which is like sort of like the the first stage of coping. And then the second stage of coping, you know, they don't matter that much, anyways. And then the third stage was, um, but we have plenty of people there in order to, you know, help man the lines." And uh, he was speaking to one of the war correspondents, uh, Alexander Kotz, and the guy Kotz said, "Well, we don't really have too many armored vehicles or tanks there, so the first line of defense will just be our soldiers uh, armed with Kalashnikovs against these tanks." And there was a, a brief moment in which uh, the passage of time was infinite, and both recognized that there are just going to be a lot of dead convicts and just regular guys who um, were going to be trying to uh, shoot a tank uh, with small arms. So in that regard, when you know, we'll see over the next couple of weeks and months uh, when and if these uh, tanks get delivered, when these tanks get delivered, where they might be used, and ultimately as part of what larger combined uh, arms operation uh, Ukraine will endeavor to, to break Russian lines or, um, you know, t- retake territory, or whatever combination of the above.
0: But yeah, that, that, that's interesting. Well, I, I get it. He's a, you know, he's a news, well, what well, qualifies as a newscaster in Russia, and he's trying to tell the story, you know, but that, that, that contrast, to be fair, a well-trained and well-equipped um, infantry anti-armor team can be deadly effective against tanks. Um, you're assuming some more risk there because, you know, the tank has lots of protection and your infantry anti-armor teams generally don't. But, um, but again, a a well-trained team can be highly effective. And that's something that we've seen all the way back to, um, you know, the Yom Kippur war between the, you know, Arab Arab states and, and Israel. That was, that was one of the, 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 the big outcomes, right. was a lot of the tank versus a lot of the tank losses were not tank versus tank. It was tank versus, infantry anti-armor teams equipped with advanced and highly lethal anti-armor munitions. So th- there's a chance. Yeah, I'm saying there's a chance, right? Sure. But it's interesting The I am not confident that Russia has, they, they might have the munitions, but the training and the quality of soldier to do that, I am much less confident they would have it. And I, I throw in here is a, I was reading a report from a defector from the, from the Wagner group that was on CNN recently. And he's, you know, he talked about, again, like the quality of the people they're getting, you know, convicts, right? Um, As well as the training they were getting, which is basically nothing. And his story matched a lot of what we talked about before, which is just throwing these guys forward um, to to delay for a a minute, you know, or a few hours, right? With zero expectation that they're going to have a larger tactical impact on the battlefield or anything more meaningful than just causing a problem for a few hours before they're dead. And... You know, in terms of the, you know, there's also been reports that, you know, it's no secret Ukraine trying to get ready for a counteroffensive. Russia always also trying to get ready for an offensive. And so mobilizing, you know, 200, 300,000, whatever, whatever number you want to take more individuals. But if they're not getting the quality training and the training to include proper employment of those anti armored munitions. Yeah, your tank against your infantry, that's that's going to be a very short and unfair fight for whoever that, that infantry soldier is.
1: So in that regard, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, again, been watching a lot of these, uh, you know, these talk shows and sort of like reading the the various telegram uh, channels of, uh, you know, what they call military bloggers over there, war bloggers over there. And, you know, the, the talk shows are more oriented towards uh, just scaring the bejesus out of like, just, Normal people watching TV, Uh, but the military bloggers are meant for people who take more than a passing interest in what's actually happening in the conflict. And the level of journalism is like much higher on telegram than it is on TV. Again, they're writing for completely different audiences and, you know, the sentiment are on these, these military channels, like on telegram is that Russia has a lot of people and Ukraine is getting better stuff all the time. And at the beginning of the conflict, you know, we've been doing this series for, unfortunately, nearly an entire year at this point. We're about, what, three and a half weeks short of the the anniversary of, uh, you know, the first shots being fired in anger. And the thing that I've noticed over the course of this year is the amount of bravado and enthusiasm and just sheer optimism of the Russian side. It really has taken a toll and in particular, I'm talking about these, like these military bloggers. Because they anticipated, in the same way that I think many anticipated, at the beginning of the conflict, Russia had so much more of everything. Just all the equipment, all the sort of, like, gr- greater numbers of people, etc. And that the Russian side has not been able to make sustaining gains in a way that matched with the pre-war expectations. Now, the first couple of months from really, although the first assaults on Kiev didn't work out, if you look at a map of where Russia was before this conflict and where they are now, they have conquered an entire land bridge uh, that encircles the Sea of Azov, which obviously makes President Putin happy because you know it puts him at least in his own mind in the pantheon of Russian greats. Um, again, the box marked Sea of Azov as internal waters. You know, good work if you can get it. But ultimately, given the amount of life lost to get that. It doesn't seem to be a prize worth crowing about uh, for anyone, but the president and this, the basically the the vibe or sort of the tone that one gets over posts over the last couple of weeks is. It's not that, you know, the the tanks themselves are the end all be all and it's not that, you know, even, you know, we, we can talk about, you know, the new type of it's not exactly the the Heimer It's the. The name escapes me at the moment, but it's the, it's the new munition that has longer range than high Mars, but shorter than attack You know, at the moment, the Ukrainians are asking for fighter jets, because obviously, like, why not at this point? And for. The people who are trying to follow this conflict from the Russian side, the story of this past year has been. It doesn't seem to be working because even where they gain. That only makes the West give Ukraine more stuff and the more stuff that Ukraine gets it then puts greater pressure on the Russian side to make more of its own stuff, to mobilize more of its own people, to empty out to whatever extent, uh, you know, the prisons of Russia, just to create what they call the ground meat, the cannon fodder. And at that point, there is, you know, you're starting, like, I'm starting to not detect, like, you know, some sort of like intelligence analyst here but it seems the vibe has shifted towards in essence something that we talked about really at the very beginning of this conflict why did russia start this particular war in those days we were talking about javelins we were talking about stingers um, and that none of those were going to be game-changing weapons but that it became clear to the russian side that if ukraine and the west Collaborate to the extent that the amount of munitions and the type of munitions get more frequent and more lethal, and you just iterate up the kill chain at that point. That that was going to lead to a period of time in which Russia would not have the escalation dominance before the war. We would, we may have thought that would have been years away. We're now nearly a a year into this conflict and like literally fighter jets have entered the chat. And that seems to be what has really filtered down into those Russian like military writers who are now trying to assess, are the tanks going to be like the wonder weapon? Are the Ukrainians going to be able to use them with all the other stuff that they're getting? But the parameters of what is possible on the Ukrainian side seem so much bigger, and the parameters on the Russian side seem so much smaller that the left and right as as it's where things have started to where things can go have shifted so much in Ukraine's favor that seems to be the thing that is corrosive um, to basically russian perceptions of how victory might be achieved in the reality-based world that the fighting you know men and women of the russian federation and like their various proxies and you know clients of you know private military companies of what they're able to accomplish and that seems to be a large part of what you know the tanks and all these other things help do is they help corrode morale on the Russian side as much if not more than what is the actual you know military capabilities of the the platform you know in this case the tanks uh that is given over to Ukraine
0: yeah and I think the the you know the the parameters and, and and the wonder weapon things are I, I, it's one of these things that I call like, you know, a zombie concept. I wish I, or a vampire concept. I wish I could drive a stick to the heart, but it just keeps coming back and there's no way to kill it. You know, we've, we've mentioned when it, whether it was high Mars or, or infantry fighting vehicles, now tanks, like there's no, there's no silver bullet thing. That's going to win the war now that it appears on the battlefield, but it's a increasing um, repository of capabilities that Ukraine is able to Combine and layer to achieve a greater effect than having you know any single one of those themselves, you know. But but to the parameters, I was, um, you know, I was I was watching some of the news today, and there were some headlines about you know Russia making gains, kind of thing. And I, I looked it up, and it's it's talking about the continuing fighting that's around Bakhmut, and we talked about uh, we talked about Soledar, which, to my understanding, is I, I think the Wagner group replaced by Russian paratroopers after massive losses by the Wagner group, they eventually took it at what is probably a, a ghastly cost of life. And now there's discussions about um, a fighting going on around the town of Volodar and which like to give some context to this, it seems that the Russian intention near Bakhmut is they're trying, they couldn't take Bakhmut directly, but now they're trying these sort of, Pincer movements to try and encircle it to the north and to the south and eventually cut it off. And then if Ukraine, Ukraine has to withdraw, they can say they finally took Bakhmut, which they've been fighting for since what last summer, you know, I'm not sure. Um, but they've been fighting for it for months now. But I, one of the, 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 the characterization of the assault that I read today was, you know, Russian forces have advanced hundreds of yards in a major new assault. And I read that and I'm like, You could rip this out of a World War I headline, right? You know, where, you know, they've taken a mile or two of new territory at ghastly cost. And it's so exhausting that the the attacking force can't go anymore. Um, And I'm not trying to make light of the situation, but it's it almost reminds me of something from, you know, the Blackadder TV show, British, British sitcom although the blackadder one they did for world war one is, is some of the the darkest comedy i've ever seen you know but they were talking about this breakthrough where uh you know british forces had finally taken some territory and the staff officer this general asked the staff officer well how much territory do we actually take and the staff officer um takes out a measuring tape and is like mm-hmm. and he says uh about five feet and the general's like well what's the scale of this map and the staff officer says well it's one to one sir um but it's superbly detailed. Look, here's a little worm kind of thing, you know, but it's like you're talking hundreds of yards after months of trying to, to take this town. You are, you, you can't sustain that. The the, the bodies coming to the, the front line, whether it's 200,000 or 300,000, that's one thing, but Russia's talking about bodies, literally that they're going to, that they're going to use to try and change the game. Meanwhile, Ukraine is talking about tanks, still asking for jets, and now, as you mentioned in the latest um, tranche, at least Reuters was reporting that this—it uh, was the ground launch small diameter bomb, which is sort of this intermediary between HIMARS and the Attackums missile. It's not as far as attackums, but it's a longer range than HIMARS. So Ukraine, again, is—you know—as this conflict goes on, yeah, Russia's throwing more bodies, uh, but Ukraine is getting increasingly sophisticated, longer range, precision munitions to. To do more things on the battlefield, combined with all the other capabilities that it gets. So, in
1: that regard, when we now think about you know Russia's way of war, we've talked for you know nearly a year about the casualty-intensive way of war. Um, the specter of an additional mobilization has been raised uh, in recent weeks, and you know, in terms of the reporting on the first mobilization, it was it was mooted for a couple weeks on end when Russia was clearly unable to you know. To buck up morale, as it were, and in fact, it was those military bloggers, the ones who had noted that basically the fall of the, you know, the Russian territory of Kharkiv, as it were, uh, and obviously the Ukraine's uh, Ukrainians getting their territory back. That was essentially the 1st time that opposition to Putin, or at least criticism of Putin had emerged, so to speak from the right. Uh, that is from the, the nationalist perspective that Putin was. Uh, ineffective at prosecuting the conflict and that frightened Putin enough and you know the people around him enough that they called uh, basically out of the blue in the same way that they had uh you know done you know started the conflict itself uh, created basically a requirement for the various military districts around the country to do a mobilization of uh, eligible citizens they got three to five hundred thousand people uh, primarily from poor and you know, ethnic and rural areas that caused a basically like a national trauma or small national trauma obviously nothing what the ukrainians are suffering but ultimately something in russia that really brought the special military operation home uh the war home as it were in a way that things had not in in a way that was contrary to the rest of the uh the war up to that point in which the government was always talking about successes and keeping um you know basically the fighting away from regular people and so since the mobilization has happened what we've seen in in terms of the reporting on people in the front is that for the stories of the individual sacrifice the heroes um in order to inspire those back home there hasn't been very much because the the fighting has been something to the effect of as you were describing uh just just men into the meat grinder and the successes of wagner the individuals uh, of Wagner are the people who have done very bad things. So these are not, um, you know, popular people. And in fact, there's been a number of instances in which uh, individuals who have been, you know, given medals for their heroism, uh, people then obviously, like, you know, do a Yandex search of their names and then uh, go to the, the victim's family, as it were, as it happened. There was one person who received the Medal for Bravery. Uh, turns out he had killed four people, Um, and he was going to be released at the end of his service and the, the 4 people that he had killed is he had killed 1 of his business associates, um, you know, in a business dispute and also killed that guy's entire family at the same time. And so the reporting on that, which is now obviously by, you know, people who have since been declared, um, you know, foreign agents is that the relatives of an entire family who was murdered was saying we should not be celebrating people who are very consistent killers. Uh, and 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 that person who had done the killing um, was openly saying that he was going to go live in uh, Turkey thereafter. So what Russia wants is this idea that the Russian people have answered the call to sacrifice in the same way that uh, what happened at the beginning for them when the Germans invaded in World War II and uh, catalyzed what they call the Great Patriotic War. They're not getting those stories and so what we're seeing in terms of you know perhaps the second mobilization is that there's obviously extremely limited interest across the country for it and now that there has been at least the example of what happened the first time you know the journalists the you know what few remaining independent journalists there are in Russia Are not reporting that they're seeing the preparations and their sources, you know, in various ministries. Are not reporting that there is preparations for a 2nd mobilization. So this either means that the Russian ministry of defense is trying to think very hard about how to use. The 300,000 plus that they got the 1st time, or they're going to do another mobilization, but they're going to do it. um, in an even more shocking way to the population than before, Uh, which is again high risk for for Putin because what it means is that he creates another you know couple hundred thousand people plus their families and their relatives who suddenly don't know what the future looks like and that can only be done every so often so when we think about the second mobilization the two questions are is the Russian ministry of defense able to bring them to the front in any sort of meaningful manner even if they don't care about the preservation of human life but can they actually put them in uniforms with guns in their hands, you know, facing uh, Ukrainian tanks? And second, can they manage the domestic fallout from taking another one, one and a half percent of uh, Russia's entire workforce from their homes, from the factories, and into the front lines? Not a lot of clarity on either. But obviously, like when we keep thinking about it those are the true logistical questions and the true political questions that we'll be looking at as uh, as this particular storyline develops
0: to you know to this to this point there's been no visible sort of well I say in the first round of mobilization there were there were some visible pushbacks but you know it ultimately seemed like you know Putin got the number of of you know bodies and boosts that he wanted but you know, there's the you, you fool me once, shame on you. Sort of fool me twice, shame on me. Thing. I think in a second round, the um, you know the a, a population cannot ignore the things that are right in front of its face forever. And so, I think there's going to be some extra challenges here. And I was looking again at that story about the uh, the defector from the Wagner group, and some of the things in that story that are going to have to um, you know the the Russian population is, is probably going to be thinking about you know, say that the Wagner group is trying to recruit in a way that the Ministry of Defense was not by offering like payout, like lots of money up front, and then payout bonuses if you got killed as an insurance policy to your family, right? But, you know, reporting both from this one individual and from advocacy groups who have been analyzing, you know, these prisoners going to the front saying that these payouts are coming, right? These people are just declared missing. And if somebody's missing, You don't know if they're alive or dead. So if you don't know if they're dead, you don't have to pay out that insurance policy, essentially. So you do that enough, eventually people are going to figure out that, you know, the rug is being pulled out from under them. That's going to impact your ability to either recruit for the private military companies like Wagner Group or uh, make it a lot more challenging to make people show up for their mobilization orders. And when I read that that specific piece, it reminded me of, I think there was an Institute for the Study of War report. I read about... um, right around sort of, you know, the invasion of Crimea, and then shortly after that, in terms of like the low, low level conflict in Luhansk and Donetsk, but it was, um, you know, the Putin government taking these measures to make people who were killed just sort of disappear, right? Like bodies not shipped back home or shipped home anonymous, anonymously, and then you don't have, there's no, there's no body of your loved one that you have to deal with, because they just never sent the bodies back, you know, to be properly buried or mourned you can only do that up to a point before people get tired of not knowing what's going on with their loved ones. So um, the messaging is certainly that there are more Russians coming and we're going to solve this with more Russians. It's going to be something to watch in terms of how many Russians they're able to recruit slash coerce slash, you know, entice with all kinds of lies and promises and show up. But then it goes back to that, whoever shows up, the quality of stuff they're getting, you know, and again with the Wagner group I was talking about, you know they're, they're just he talks about no real tactics no real training and they're just thrown in there as you know temporary speed bumps with their bodies i, I guess the last thing that we would watch is you know if there's going to be preparations for a major offensive on part of the russia we already like ukraine will know and the rest of the west will know because the, there were those same indications and warnings when they were building up for the initial invasion back in you know as you said about a year a year ago uh previously so uh I think sort of watching those movements and those consolidations will be another indicator of how many people they were actually able to get, what kind of equipment they're gonna be able to get. And uh, if it's really just bodies and Kalashnikovs and not much else compared to Western infantry fighting vehicles and Western tanks and Western longer range, you know, not attack again, but longer range um, precision munitions, I think there's a very, there's still going to be a very ugly fight that's going to be brewing, but it's going to be kind of a unfair fight for one side, because you can only throw so many bodies under the tank treads um, before the tanks just keep on rolling.
1: We can sort of, you know, put a pin on it to say that this ultimately may be the the Ukrainian strategy in terms of effectively understanding the social weaknesses of what Russia is, is facing right now that by talking about tanks talking about you know the the ground
0: ground launched small diameter bomb
1: the gilson uh which is uh, rolls off the tongue a lot uh less easily than uh high or attack uh which is a failure whichever manufacturer didn't come up with a snappy acronym for that one uh you know shame on them but ultimately, between watching these military talk or these uh, political talk shows, reading the military bloggers, there's a lot more consternation on the Russian side in terms of the way that they're understanding their own messaging. There's a lot of fear on the Russian side about, you know, social fear that there will be another mobilization. And we can see that in terms of what Ukraine is doing to Russia it's that it is creating by talk of tanks, by talk of offensives, that it's putting the onus of doing something on Putin and on the Russian side. We've seen this over the course of the conflict. When you feel that you need to do something, that's essentially the first step towards disaster, because it suggests that you have to rush people who may not be ready. You have to rush people who may not be equipped. You have to rush people who may not wanna be there to do things which are very, very dangerous. And that might be if we sort of then think, Putin hears all this discussion about like tanks and offensives and he thinks to himself, well, I'm the one who's winning, I'm the one who's just, let's put another couple hundred thousand on the front lines, we'll overwhelm them, we'll show them who's boss and we'll show them that we can outlast whatever it is uh, that the United States and NATO provides, we can overwhelm the Ukrainians at any point. And if that bet doesn't work, it means that they've chewed up tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in order to not be successful. And then that creates a lot more pressure on the Russian side because you can only draw from the well of mobilization every so often. And so this might be Ukraine's way of trying to cognitively manipulate Putin into making bad military decisions which he then forces uh, to be implemented through his yes men of Shoigu and uh, Gerasimo, which we talked about in the
0: last episode. Yeah, and as, as you mentioned that 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 was actually a an informational angle that had never really occurred to me. Um, and I think one of the things that's come out of this war is like we don't, you know, when you're av- when you think your adversary is ten feet tall, and then they reveal themselves to not be ten feet tall. You you don't want to you know just go and assume that they're only one foot tall right like they're probably somewhere in the middle so uh, you know one of the the things out of this war has been the uh, the strength of the Ukrainian information campaign at all layers but it 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 hadn't occurred to me that um, there could there could be a few angles to that messaging about weapons like obviously I I think it's it's fair to say that you know the Ukrainian government is um, would love to have all the weapon systems they've been asking for they would want them anyway right? Because that's a, again, that's a, that's a larger repository of military options. You have to put a bad thing on your enemy, you know, on the flip side though, a getting your enemy to do something before they're ready to do it, to to step into disaster is a tried and true military strategy. And so, yeah, I, uh, I, I could, I could appreciate that part of their strategy is getting them to do something earlier before they're ready. And, uh, getting them to overcommit and then you punch them back in that overcommittal and maybe that, that overcommitment opens up one of those, you know, those dislocations um, that you're able to exploit later on. So, yeah, again, uh, I'm I'm not trying to make the Ukrainians into Jedi masters or the Russians into, you know, people who fall for things because, but it's interesting because what you sort of just described is reminding me of of the Soviet concept of reflexive control, basically where you do things to get your adversary to do what you want them to do, which is a disadvantage to them. And then you go and exploit it. It's kind of sort of sounds like it, it might be being done back to the, uh, the originators of that concept, which, you know, turnabout is fair play. So there, there's an audience of one here. And, and this is a guy who has
1: put all in on his legacy being the destruction of Ukraine as, as, as extensively and as quickly as possible. And that's essentially the lunge, which as like a Judo guy, uh, I think ultimately we can find the irony that if literally the thing that just came to mind in terms of, like, trying to understand, you know, perhaps this informational angle using the weight of Putin's ambition against him and Russia. Might be in an ironic uh, flip over the shoulder.
0: Yeah, it certainly would be and it would. It would not be surprising because again we've talked about he's in a he's in a closed loop. He's in his own echo chamber that he is he is deliberately constructed over decades to only be told the certain things that he wants to hear. So all the people under him are trained to only tell him the things he wants to hear. So it, it would definitely be ironic if that closed system of syncophancy that he has built gets him to launch into a an offensive that's not ready and that opens up a vulnerability that all of these new things Ukraine is getting is then able to exploit um to to catastrophic effect if you're Russian to good effect if you're Ukrainian yeah we we've, we've been going this uh time has flown by here so um unless there's anything else you wanted to cover here I think we've we've covered a lot of ground and got everybody up to date so thanks for the next episode
1: uh we'll we'll see where the uh, the jet talk goes And the jet talk goes is also sounds like jet tacos, Um, and we'll also assess uh, Russia's military and civilian budget. Um, the official 2022 uh, budget figures are now in the uh, estimations for 2023 are also in and this is going to be the most expensive year of, uh, of Putin's life, uh, no matter what happens. Um. Just the teaser for the next episode this is their largest um total deficit for 2022 was 2.3 percent of the GDP um only the height of the pandemic and uh the, the after effects of the 2009 financial crisis um were were worse uh Russia's losing in the range of 170 plus million dollars per day due to the price cap uh that is that gone that went in. Uh, roughly or so, um, which will only increase, which was the petroleum price cap on crude. There has been a, there's a new price cap on refined products. So, you know, things such as diesel, uh, which will, uh, take Russian losses even further. Um, this is helping to create a budgetary crunch in Russia. Um, and 1 of the one little tidbits that have that has come out in the last couple of uh, weeks. Is that the number of regions? So, Russia doesn't have states. They call them regions. They have 83 plus, uh, Crimea. uh, and Sevastopol, which is sort of a city state, uh. In 2021, there were 19 regions in deficit. Uh, because of the various economic shocks, 39 regions are now in deficit. Um, so the war machine will keep going. The economy will keep going because they have no alternative but the creaking has already started in the machine and i think we'll we'll take that in greater detail uh next time
0: yeah i think that's a good place to to table it and look forward to the next one because we've we've talked a lot about the one clock on the ukrainian side in terms of western support it's been a while since we've done a deep dive into that other clock which is the ability of the russian economy to to sustain the fight so uh yeah we'll go and if if you're an economics nerd then the next episode is going to be for you so Um, so get, get excited and get ready. All right. Yuval as always, uh, great to talk to you. Thank you for helping our audience get up to speed and yeah, we'll be doing, uh, looking at Russian economics 101, I guess on the next one, um, you know, as well for our audience, you know, Yuval and I've been talking, we'll have a, a special episode on the one-year mark of this war to, you know, we'll, we'll sort of figure out, I guess, look, maybe look at some things we got right, things we got wrong and uh in the outlook in another month i'm not going to call it an anniversary because to me an anniversary is a happy occasion and you know one year this war is not a happy occasion at all but uh we are gonna well we'll take some time to to take a look back at what's unfolded in the last year and see what the next year might look like you've all thank you for your time good night we'll uh, good see night. you see on the next one take care Bye-bye. bye 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 Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Crew Lab community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube, or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support and we'll see you on the next episode.